Let's get our Bibles out, open to page 1272 in the Pew Bible in front of you, or Acts chapter 15, if you brought a copy of Scripture. Page 1272, Acts 15, we are preaching our way through the book of Acts, and this morning, by the providence of God, we come to chapter 15, which is a very wonderful, rich, and full, amazing chapter of Scripture that is perfect for this morning, just as the Lord planned. I want to pray first, and then we'll study together. Okay, will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord, and we are grateful to be able to be together as a family, to be able to celebrate you, to worship you, to honor you through the reading, hearing, studying of your word. We humble ourselves before the scripture as perfect, inerrant words from you for us. They are relevant to us today in this moment. We need your help to receive them as we ought. Give us ears to hear. Holy Spirit, will you come and work in this time that we're able to glean from you and that you'll change us by the hearing of your word. All for your glory, honor, and praise. We, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we left off last week where Paul and Barnabas had finished up their first, Paul's first missionary journey. You know those maps in the back of your Bible you never look at? Well, the first missionary journey came to an end, and so they they landed back where they began in Antioch. And so they're there teaching for a while, and time is passing by. Now, I want you to, to realize that as Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, the rest of the apostles are in Jerusalem. And so as the Word of God and the church is growing and spreading across the face of the globe, it's emanating from two central locations. There's two main churches, the church at Antioch and the church at Jerusalem. And so that's where the apostles are split between. And what you need to know is that these two churches were very different. And if God didn't intervene in the situation, then what would end up happening is you would end up, hap- you would end up with two distinctly different churches that had two distinctly different ideas about the gospel and about the Bible and about how people come to faith and live successfully as Christians and everything else. So God intervenes in chapter 15 to bring unity and clarity to the gospel. Now, just a little preemptive strike here. So this morning is baby dedication... And those of you that are here every week, you know that, you know, there's, I mean, I've been teaching through the book of Acts for months and months and months. I couldn't have known in a thousand years that on baby dedication, I was going to preach a sermon on circumcision. But that's how God works it out. So if you don't know what circumcision is, I can't help you. But I do want to make a, I do want to clarify something because I don't want you sitting there the whole time I'm talking thinking, I just don't get this whole circumcision thing. Okay? So circumcision, everything in the scripture is a symbol or a sign. It has meaning. God doesn't call people to do things for nothing. And in the Old Testament, part of the Old Covenant is that God called his people to be circumcised. And so on the eighth day after a male child is born, he would be circumcised. And that was part of the Mosaic law. Now, you say, well, that's just weird. What is all that about? Well, it's kind of weird, but not if you understand it. It's a symbol. What's it a symbol of? Well, to be circumcised is sort of, is to be cast off. You, there's shedding of blood and the, and the casting off. And it's a symbol of what's to come when Jesus would shed his blood and be cast off and say, Father, why have you forsaken me? So it's also a symbol of purity. 
And so I just want you to understand that it, it has meaning and purpose. And it just seems a little strange to us in this culture, but that's really more than I am comfortable talking about, circumcision. So, All right? So if you don't know what it is, you just look to your left and look to your right. Pick the most uncomfortable-looking person. Lean over and say, can you explain circumcision to me? And you'll make a friend for life or a mortal enemy. One or the other. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea, that would be Jerusalem, and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here is God's intervention. The church at Jerusalem is struggling with the salvation of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, which is what the church at Antioch is primarily made up of. Now, we have to understand the situation in Jerusalem. First of all, the first Christians were Jewish, and they're in Jerusalem. Jesus was Jewish, who's the Messiah, the Savior. The Old Covenant people were all Jewish. In the Old Testament, whenever non-Jewish people believed in Yahweh, the God of the Bible, they would have to convert to Judaism in order to Follow God amongst the Jews. So all of these things were the precedent of the old way things were done. So it would seem sensible that the Jewish believers in Jerusalem would be a little confused about, now what do we, what do, we do now that Gentiles are becoming Christians? I mean, how is this going to work? And so they're under the assumption that, well, they must have to convert to Judaism just like people had to do in the Old Covenant before Jesus, okay? So now there's two primary questions that this problem raises. We'll only be able to answer one this morning, and then the second question we'll answer in part two of this text. But the questions are this. First of all, the obvious question is, well, do these new Christians need to conform to Jewish customs in order to be saved. And then the bigger question is, is, well, I mean, do new Christians need to do anything extra to be saved? What, we, we need clarity on the most important issue that mankind will ever face, which is how does one receive salvation and eternal life with God? And if we don't have clarity on that, there's going to be a huge problem. We must have clarity on that issue. Well, what exactly is the gospel? And so that's the first question. The second question is, if they don't need to follow Jewish customs to be saved, then how are the people that comprise these two churches going to fellowship together? Because one church is filled with people that have all adopted the Jewish custom and one church is filled with people that haven't and so remember I've already taught you in length about how the reason for all the dietary laws in the old covenant is to is to keep God wanted to keep his people separate because the only way people could blend together would be around the table at meals and so now now you have Christians who how are they going to come together? Because the way the Gentiles eat is offensive to the way the believers in Jerusalem eat. And so that's a question. So those are the two questions that are raised. Now, the decision is made at the church at Antioch to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to address the issue. Verse 2. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. Now, anytime, if you know anything about the Bible, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know, whenever it says there's no small dispute, that means there was a sure enough smackdown. Is what that means. Paul was a firecracker. And so it was not a small dispute because Paul was there. It was a big dispute. And certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Verse 3, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, des describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And they 
caused great joy to all the brethren. So they stopped at the churches along the way as they traveled. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, they rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Okay, now, is this a really big deal? Yes, because this, is a, this has gospel implications. Anything that has to do with how a person is saved is a huge deal. And so this is a huge deal. And Paul, in particular, understands it's a huge deal, which is why they had a big smackdown about it. The way you know Paul takes this so seriously is, first of all, they just decide, well, me and Barnabas are going to go to Jerusalem. Now, how far do you suppose it is from Antioch to Jerusalem? Now, remember, we're not riding a high-speed train. We're not getting into an Escalade. We're not even getting on a Greyhound bus. We're not even riding a bicycle. 250 miles. This is an incredibly long journey. And so along the way, they're visiting the churches. But that shows you the seriousness of this question. It is the most important news the world has ever heard. The good news of the gospel. we got to have clarity. So if there's anything that somebody must do beyond faith alone, by grace alone, then we need to figure that out. So let me give you, if you got your listening guide, let's do some gospel math, okay? Your first equation is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. There's your first equation. That is the simplicity of the gospel message. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Or you could say it this way, Jesus plus anything ruins everything. You cannot add anything to the gospel. Nothing. Not one thing. The gospel cannot be tampered with. The Scripture's most stern warnings come about tampering or tinkering with the gospel. Remember when we preached through the book of Galatians where Paul said, if even an angel, if even an angel comes to you, and preaches to you a gospel different than what I'm preaching, let them go to hell. Let them be accursed. That's how serious this issue is. Now, verse 5 should have caught your attention. Let's look at it again. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up. Now, we're used to seeing the Pharisees in a whole different light in the Gospels. Jesus called the Pharisees in one sermon uh, brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, uh, hypocrites, I mean, all sorts of things. And now we have Pharisees who have been converted and are amongst the church at Jerusalem. And so they say it is necessary to circumcise them. They speak up. Now these are religious professionals. And so the, the, we need to just pause for a moment and take a principle out of this, which is history is riddled with people who knew the Bible well and missed the gospel. Riddled. Literally riddled. Every church has people in it who know the Bible and yet do not know the gospel. And so here we have by far, by a million miles, the most biblically literate, knowledgeable people in the church would have been the Pharisees. Nobody knew the Bible as good as they did. Now, these were Christians. Were they intentionally trying to trap people a short circuit? That No. They just didn't know the Bible. They didn't know the gospel. All right, verse 6. So now the apostles and the elders came together. So now everyone's together. You've got all the, you've got the apostles that are uh, there. The apostles from Antioch have come. So now everyone's together to solve this matter. Verse 7. 
And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them. Now remember, Peter, several chapters back, was the one who had the vision, who was the first one to lead a Gentile, and his name was Cornelius, to faith in Christ. Remember that? And he had the vision about the food and the sheet opening up and so on and so forth. Okay, so Peter stands up and says, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He says a good while ago. Do you know how long it's been since Cornelius was saved? Ten years have passed. So that was ten years ago. Verse 8. Now, so God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by, what's the word? Faith. Verse 10. Now, therefore... Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? The passage I would underline in my Bible, if it were me, would be passage number 10. That would be where I would underline. Verse 11, but we believe that through the, what's the word? Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Okay, so... Here's what Peter's saying. Although everybody who attempts to live in a legalistic manner will fail miserably, every person is drawn to try. You know why that is? Because it's the bend in all of us. All of us have flesh, meaning parts of us that are you know, the old man still lives. It's, it's, it's still there. And the flesh in you, when you don't walk by the Spirit, you walk by the flesh. And so no matter how long you've been a Christian, if you're not careful and you take your eyes off the gospel, you'll start to gravitate towards legalism because we're all bent towards legalism. All of us were born into this life glory pirates. We love glory. We love accolades, we love pats on the back, we love encouragement, we love... And so when it comes to the gospel, if we're not careful, if we're not intentional, we'll start to slide over and, and begin to ease the gospel into a way that starts to make us feel good and make us look good. Every person has a bend that way. So Peter is pointing out that all this religious rule-keeping, it can never do ever what you want it to do. Here's, here's a quote for you to come up on the screen from A.W. Tozer. It's a good way to see grace. Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. That's a good way to understand grace. You see, the gospel is centered upon grace. The only thing that we bring to the table is faith. That's it. It's just faith and faith alone. And so this unmerited favor that God showers down on us through the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice that allows us to be saved, forgiven, adopted, redeemed, all of those things, it's just grace. It's grace. And God bestows that upon the undeserving. So what happens is we sort of get moving in our Christian life, and then we will start adding things to the equation. Our gospel math gets incorrect. We start to just ease off into... Now, it, it comes in a lot of different ways. It comes maybe because you, maybe you got saved, and you got saved into a family that had already been saved for a long time, and so they were already, they already had legalistic tendencies, and so you got Sort of you were just born into that confusion. Maybe you were like me and you got saved out of the clear blue sky and didn't have any Christian family. or anything. But then you come into church and you start noticing that people are saying things or doing things that aren't in the Bible. It's a very strange thing. You see, I, I think the difference between me and most people who just get saved is that I got saved attempting to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. 
And when I got saved, I kept reading it. And so I was a brand new Christian, and I didn't know much about church, but I knew what the Bible said. And I started hearing people say things and do things and go, well, that's weird. That's not in the Bible. And what it was, it was their culture. It was the way they grew up. And they thought that because it was the way they grew up that everybody ought to do it. But it's not in the Bible. And what we have here is a group of people in Jerusalem that think that, well, this is the way we've always done it. And this is the way it's, our culture's done it. And so we need to keep doing it. And there's no difference. And we understand why it happens. But what we have to do is understand the danger of it. You see... When we add anything to the gospel, what happens, what we're doing is we're attempting, whether consciously or subconsciously, to merit the gift. That's what we're doing. And that's a very dangerous thing to do. So this will be by far the most important thing I'm going to say to you today. This is the thing I want you to put on your, uh, I, I want it to be like the home screen on your phone. I want it to be stuck on your dashboard so when you're, uh, at a, only at a red light, you look down and look at it. Not when you're on Highway 49 behind me. Please, God, don't look at it. Okay? Seem like everybody that comes up behind me at a red light is either texting, uh, eating cereal, or putting on mascara. I mean, it's like I'm, my prayer life is unbelievable from driving on Highway 49. But anyway. This is what I want you to get right here. I mean, I want you to get this. Put it on your wall at home. Do something. But remind yourself constantly, when we become the hero of our own story, our story becomes a terrible tragedy. What you do not want to do as a Christian is ever in any way even start to move towards, don't even take, don't even inch towards anything that makes you the hero of your story. That is a disaster. There's only one hero of every saved person's story. Only one. It's not me, it's not you, it's not the person who shared faith with us, it's not your pastor, it's not your church, it's not anything other than Jesus alone. He's the hero of the story. Don't ever, ever, ever let yourself be the hero. And you will realize, if you think about this, and if you keep this before you, how easy it is and how often we begin to try to inch our way into the credits. We are very ingenious at this. Very ingenious. It's a very, very sneaky, sneaky temptation. You know, Peter says in verse 10, Why are we putting a yoke around the neck of these disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? He's saying, listen, we couldn't keep the law. Our fathers couldn't keep the law. What makes you think they could keep the law, right? That's what he's saying. He's just clarifying what everyone in the room knows, including the Pharisees, who were the kings at what? Adding to the law. And so he's saying, look, we couldn't do this. How can we possibly ask them to do it? You see, the point of the gospel is that Jesus had to come to do it for us. We couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Jesus had to do it. He's the hero. You get it? He's the hero. We're not the hero. Verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul. See? Just little indicators of... You notice it didn't say that about Peter, but when Paul got up, everybody got quiet because he's just a, he's a character. They got quiet, and he declared how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James, the brother of Jesus, gets up. Now, you notice all the heavy hitters are in unison speaking about the clarity of the gospel. It's not just it's Peter, then it's Paul and Barnabas, and now James speaks up, and he says, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter 
has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his own name. That's a very Abrahamic statement, right? He's talking about the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis. Verse 15, And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now what's he going to do? He's going to reach back. Because Again, who's he talking to? He's talking to people who are Jewish in culture. They were familiar with the old covenant. So he reaches back and quotes the prophet Amos chapter 9. And he says, after this, the Lord says, I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up. And what's that verse talking about? Jesus. Who's fallen down that he's going to set up? Who's, who, what's the tabernacle of David? Jesus is going to go in the tomb for three days, and he's going to raise him up, right? And so he's quoting Amos, and he's, he's talking about how he's, God's going to raise him up, verse 17, so that, so here's what's going to happen, so that because of Jesus, the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. You see that? The rest of mankind. So we're here this morning because Jesus was raised up, and we, because we're the rest of mankind who get to seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. That was all the way back in the prophet Amos. You see? But what has gone so haywire? And it's haywire. It's not haywire here in this fellowship, but it definitely does exist. But it is haywire in the church at large, for sure. Pastor Matt preached about it on Wednesday night. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, so much to say, how do we hone this thing down? You see, I think to be clear, it's, it's that somehow, somehow, as crazy as what I'm about to say is. If you look around closely at the Christian community. If you listen to the conversations. Somehow. The Christian life. Has become focused on. The Christian. That is a huge problem. A huge problem. When people talk in a gospel-centered way, you hear things like my and we and us. That's not in the gospel. In your mind right now, if you're thinking, you can recall conversations that you've had or heard where the conversation is about the Christian. The Christian life should never be focused on the Christian. Never. That is an absolute, that's what makes your story a tragedy right there. It will always end tragically. Always. Always. Because what it does is it puts you on the performance treadmill. See, you're sitting in a church this morning that is so aggressively and intentionally at war against this thinking. Everything that we do, every message that I preach is intentionally and aggressively trying to thwart Legalism. Because the performance treadmill is a ruthless master. And I don't want anybody that I love, especially anybody that I'm shepherding, and on top of that, anybody that I'm going to give account for, 
to spend their life running on a performance treadmill instead of running the race that God's called us to run. And here's the reason why. Because wherever you find legalism, you will always, always also find a diminished confidence in the gospel. Always. It doesn't matter how small and insignificant it seems. It will 100% of the time, 100% of the time, it will always be accompanied by a diminished confidence in the gospel. You see, you show me a person who is wrapped up in trying to make people dress a certain way in order to be acceptable Christians. And I'll show you a person who doesn't believe the gospel strong enough to change a person's heart and, make, and get them to dress an appropriate way on its own. You show me a person who's been out of shape about some custom or the way things are or their own preferences about this or that. And I'll show you a person who doesn't believe the gospel is powerful enough to lead. You see, you just, you, it goes on and on and on and on and on. In other words, you, could, you can't say, you can't be a legalist and then, and then allow some complaining critical word to come out of your mouth and believe that a sovereign God is in control and leading and guiding a situation. Amen. You can't do that. Now, you can be gospel-centered and unhappy about something and drop to your knees and pray to the God of the gospel to change it. That's a different story. But legalism is 100%, 100% diminishing the power of the gospel. Listen, I do not have to tell people how to behave. I need to tell people how to be saved. And anyone I'm having to talk to about how to behave is because they're insufficient on how to be saved. Amen. That's the gospel. God doesn't need our help. He can do it on his own. You see how real a moment like this comes? Like now you really have to ask yourself, is the cross sufficient? Is it? Do you live as if it's sufficient? How do you react to people who don't share your culture? Do you think that your culture is superior to someone else's? Do you? That's a dangerous place to be. God is intervening here to bring unity through the gospel. You notice this whole passage isn't about anything other than clarity of the gospel because if the gospel's clear and we understand what the gospel is and how to deal with it and how to relate to it then everything else is going to take care of itself won't it yes it will let me show you this verse will come up on the screen in john chapter 16 verse 13 remember jesus said however when he the spirit of truth has come he's telling his disciples he will guide you into all truth Right? Now, in John chapter 16, almost the entire chapter, and chapter 17 for that matter, is red letters in your Bible. Because the same person is speaking for the entirety of the chapters. And his name is Jesus. And when he makes that statement right there, he's talking to the disciples. He's talking to people who are already his followers. Right? And he says to them, I'm going to leave, and the Spirit's going to come, and He's going to indwell you, and He's going to lead you to all truth. Doesn't that strike you as kind of strange? In other words, the question that we got to ask ourselves is, why would people who already belong to God 
need to be continually reminded of what is true. Haven't they already found the truth? Didn't Simon Peter, who was standing right there in that group who heard that, didn't he just back in John chapter 6 say, well, I know who you are. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Didn't he say that? And Jesus said, well, you, you say rightly. Didn't he say that? So he already knows that. So if he already knows the truth, why does he need to be continually, daily, moment by moment, led to the truth? If you've already found the truth, apparently, what the Bible's trying to tell us is the danger is thinking, well, I found the truth. So now I can just start walking on my own. No. No. The Spirit is in us to constantly remind us daily, moment by moment by moment, continuously over and over and over, when our flesh gets annoyed by something or offended by something or bent out of shape about something or we don't understand something, to constantly remind us, wait a minute, hold on. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. Because if you're not reminded continually of the truth, what are you going to do? Forget the truth. Change the truth. Warp the truth. Bend the truth. Isn't that what's going to happen? That's exactly what's going to happen. And so the Bible teaches that when we become a Christian, we embark on a process called sanctification. That we're being sanctified. So here's, here's our definition of sanctification. Sanctification is perfecting the art of forgetting about yourself. That's what sanctification is. That every day, the Spirit of God is going to guide you to truth so you won't think about yourself. So you won't make yourself the hero of your story. So you'll be reminded every day in every way, every time you open the Bible, every time you, every time you study, every time you pray, every time you worship, you'll be reminded not to get hung up on yourself. Because it's going to make your story a tragedy. See, I must decrease that he'll increase, right? You see, the only solution to the problem of sin has always been the gospel. It's the only solution. And since Christians, after they're saved, continue to sin... That once we get saved, we're not done with the gospel, are we? No, we're not. I mean, I could point out all the ways that you're not done with the gospel. But that's going to take a long time. So it'd be quicker if I point out just a simple illustration of how I'm not done with the gospel. This will just be a blessing to some of you because we just had marriage night. And this just happened yesterday just to show you that you can be married 30 years and still you hadn't learned a doggone thing. So yesterday we were getting ready to go somewhere. And my wife comes out and she put this dress on. And I'm telling y'all, I hate this dress. Lord, I can't stand it. Now, this isn't the first time I've seen it. I've hated it for a long time. I hated it back then. I hated it all between then. And I still hate it today. I hate it. But I've never said a word. You know why? Because I'm a smart man. <laughs> I keep it to myself. This is the first time I've ever audibly told anybody that I hated that dress because I hate that sucker. So she puts it on and comes out, and I'm thinking, Lord, I'm thinking, Lord, I hate that dress. Doggone it, I hate that dress. God, why don't you make her go in there and change to something else? Because I can't, but you could. You're a sovereign, powerful God. Could you do that, God? About that time, Lisa said, Honey, what do you think about this dress? <laughs> See, this is what the Scripture means. God will not be mocked right there. I mean, so what am I going to do now? So all this is racing through my mind. I'm thinking to myself now, Rahab lied, and she's cool, so maybe I could... I mean, that's what I'm thinking. I'm, I'm going, truth, lie, truth, lie, truth. I'm trying to, I'm, man, I'm working. Ah. 
So I said, I'm a pastor. I'm the man of my house. I've been married 30 years. We can withstand this moment. I said, well, honey, honestly, I don't really care for that dress. You'd have thought I lit her hair on fire. <laughs> Son, she went to whooping on me. Well, what you, well, you just don't know what looks good. <laughs> and I said, you know what, honey? The gospel's not done with me. That's all I had to say. I thought, I'm going to preach it tomorrow, and I'm living it right up in here now. She did change the dress, by the way. But it wasn't worth it. I should have went with Rahab. It would have been way better. So if the gospel is the only lifeline to a fallen world we, we, we better know what it is right we, we got to be if we don't know anything else we got to be crystal clear on the gospel so I want you to know this morning that the gospel tells me that the determining factor in my relationship with God is not Jesus, is Jesus' work for me and not my work for Him. See, what I want you to know about the gospel is, is that what determines your relationship with God is not your work for God. It is not. It's not how good you are. It's not how obedient you are. It's not how... Whatever it is that's a big deal to you. It's not the music you listen to or the way you dress or, or any of that stuff. It's not the haircut you have. It's Jesus' work for me, not my work for him. It's his obedience for us, not our obedience for him. That our relationship is not predicated on that. It's solely predicated on him. Colossians chapter 3. I think the book of Colossians is such a great place to get centered in the gospel. Colossians 2 verse 13 says this. And you, Apostle Paul says, being dead in your trespasses and in your uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. Now I just want you to notice how much we're not in this. Okay, We're dead. And the gospel says, but he, Jesus, made us alive. Having forgiven all trespasses, all of them, verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was, by the way, contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's a great way to just realize, whoo, man. The gospel is such a reminder that I need to forget about myself right there. You see, what happens is we... We believe that God's amazing grace gets us in, but we forget daily that His amazing grace keeps us in. And we start trying to do things to keep ourselves in. You can't do that. You can't pollute it like that. We have to remember that God, God loves us. And what does that mean when I say God loves us? That means God loves you different than you, you love people. You can't love like God. He loves you in a unique and different way. He doesn't love you more when you're doing better and love you less when you're doing worse. It's not a performance-based love. You, you can't do that and neither can I. You might say you love someone or something unconditionally, but that's just not true. Because that thing can annoy you enough to where you're going to change your position. But you can't do that to God. He loves you the same on your good days and your bad days. 
God's acceptance of us is not gained by our successes nor forfeited by our failures because it's not about us. You see? We're glory pirates. And we want to, all our life we've been, we've been taught to be successful. And we've been taught to celebrate successes. And the gospel comes along and says, no, sorry. Mm-mm. You're a failure. And your only hope is Jesus. And you're 100% in need of him. And every other person's 100% in need of them. And if somebody else doesn't get that, that's their problem. But they're 100% in need of him. It's not about our successes. We don't forfeit anything by our failures. This is not a performance treadmill. Colossians chapter 1. Let's look at this passage. It will come up on the screen. For this reason we also, listen to what Paul says, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Now listen to what Paul prays for. To ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and longsuffering with joy. I mean, that is an uh, that is a audacious prayer. Now think about the Bible is is declaring Paul is praying for people just like me and you. And this is what he's asking for. That is incredible. And look at what the very next verse says, verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in his light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. You see, in the first part, Paul is praying this audacious, unbelievable prayer. And then in the very next couple of verses, Paul says, here's how that prayer is going to come true. It's not by you getting after it. It's not by you showing us how smart you are, how strong you are, how disciplined you are. No. He says you can live a life. He prays that we'd be filled with knowledge, wisdom, spiritual understanding, that we'd walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him and be increasingly fruitful, filled with strength and patience. That's what he prays for. And then he says, as you become increasingly aware of what God's already done, which is qualified you, delivered you, conveyed you, and forgiven you. You want to be awesome for God? The Bible would say, then devote all your time and energy to being aware that God has qualified you, past tense. That he's delivered you, past tense. That he's conveyed your citizenship from the kingdom of darkness, past tense. And that he's forgiven you. You see that? And the result will be that you'll be full of wisdom and knowledge and spiritual understanding and walk worthy, fully pleasing to Him, fruitful and patient and strong. You see? It's the gospel. So Christian growth doesn't happen by behaving better. No. Christian growth happens by believing better. Believing better. What we have to do is we have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. The gospel is that Jesus alone is the way of salvation, not us. Lest any man could boast and try to steal glory 
and ruin his story. But we're not done with it at salvation. It's only the beginning. And then what we need is the spirit within us to guide us daily, moment by moment, back to that truth over and over and over. So how are we going to not be the hero of our story? You know, I've, I've shared this with you before. And I think that it's the best way to close this time together today. I don't know who wrote this. I don't think anybody does. But it's called The Fellowship of the Unashamed. And here's what it says. It says, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus. Therefore, I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense, and my future is secure. I am done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I am no longer in need of preeminence or prosperity or position or promotion or popularity. I don't have to win, be first, be right, be recognized, rewarded, or regarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, love his patience, Live by prayer and labor with power. My goal is God's glory. My face is set. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, Ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, or slow up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and spoken up for the cause of Christ. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. Christ has qualified me to be a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I am his And he is mine. And nothing can change that.